Please listen carefully. This is the House of Speakeasy podcast, where writers and audiences come together for close encounters of the literary kind. With our live performances at Joe's Pub on hiatus due to the coronavirus, we're pleased to bring all new stories to you on our podcast. I am Erin Cox, executive producer for Seriously Entertaining and your host. The stories in this episode were for our March show, themed As Good As Gold. Our first storyteller is journalist Ann Nelson, author of the new book, Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. In this story, Anne looks at the 2016 election, how it went unpredictably wrong, and what religious radio shows in the Midwest had to do with it. Take it away, Anne. Telephone to glory, oh what joy divine! I can feel the spirit moving through the line, built by God the Father for his loved and own. We can talk to Jesus through this royal telephone. When I was a little girl in Nebraska, I loved to explore my grandmother's attic. And it was in a farm in Clay County, Nebraska. And I found this songbook that was uh, full of gospel songs from ages past. It belonged to my great grandfather. And I learned that he sang it with his gospel quartet on the radio station in Clay Center. So of course I took it and I still have it to this day. And that's where I learned that song, The Royal Telephone. Uh, And I imagined all these farmers out in the Midwest listening to this radio station and hearing these gospel songs and how important radio was as a part of their lives. Um, And also how incredible these songs were. Uh, they, they really had a lot of juice to them. Uh, well, fast forward, I grew up, my family moved to Oklahoma, but I went east to college. I lived in New York for the last many, many years. Um, and I go back to Oklahoma a couple of times a year to see my family, a little less to Nebraska. But over that time, the role of these radio stations really changed. And I was driving uh, in my hometown in Oklahoma one day some years ago and just idly turned the radio on in the car. And all of a sudden, one of these religious radio stations started talking politics. Uh, And the message basically was, uh, and this was back in the time when John Kerry was running for president, and the, the announcer was saying that if John Kerry was elected president, uh, his policy on gay marriage would threaten the sanctity of marriage for uh, for you and your husband and your wife, uh, and that that heterosexual marriage would actually be threatened by by his presidency. And a woman called up and she said, "I've been married to my husband for thirty years, and uh, would that mean I wouldn't be married to my husband anymore?" And 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 the announcer actually told her she should be worried about that if Kerry was elected president. So I said, oh dear, Um, first of all, you know, if this is a pastor, they're not supposed to be talking politics if they're involved with a tax-exempt organization, Um, but maybe it's just this local preacher who's giving people this line. Um, Well, fast forward again to November 2016, when, like a lot of people, I was watching the election returns, 
And I had been told by the New York Times and all kinds of respected sources that Hillary Clinton was going to win the election. Um, and I kind of watched those election meters uh, turn around over the course of the evening on election night. Uh, and I started wondering how she could win the election by 3 million votes and still lose it by 80,000 votes in the Electoral College in three swing states. So in my capacity as a researcher and a policy analyst, I dove in and started the research on a book that became Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. And I found out that there's a whole array of radio stations belonging to radio networks across much of the United States that purport to be religious broadcasting, but are actually deeply political. And they're connected to what are called Christian broadcasting television networks, which are also extremely political. And they are connected as well to uh, many online platforms, uh, as well as book publishing, feature films. It goes on and on and on. And then I learned uh, that the people who ran these organizations were connected to each other through this organization called the Council for National Policy. Uh, and that they've been involved in this long range strategy to win the Electoral College over many, many elections. Uh, and going into 2016, they were wanting to support the presidency of uh, the, the presidential campaign of Ted Cruz. But as Donald Trump won the primaries, they realized that they were going to have to pivot. And they called a big meeting in New York City in June 2016 and basically cut a deal with Donald Trump. There were a thousand fundamentalist activists who crowded into the Marriott Marquis Ballroom to listen to Trump. Uh, before this, a lot of them had been never Trumpers. And they had said, oh, he isn't a man of God. He's had a sinful past. He doesn't respect women, et cetera, et cetera. But then it became this ultimate moment of quid pro quo where Trump kind of talked the talk of the fundamentalists and uh, waved around some biblical references. But more importantly, he gave them what they wanted. Um, and one of those things was the ability to give him a list of judges for federal judgeships and that he would appoint judges from that list. And these would be ex exclusively conservative judges who would be against LGBT rights, who would be against women's reproductive rights, who would favor churches in tax policy, et cetera, et cetera. And another thing that he gave them was the ability to write certain social elements of the Republican platform. And these were social policy, again, dealing with LGBT rights, women's reproductive rights, and others. Uh, so, so here all of these pieces were hanging out there in the news coverage, but people hadn't really put them together to see how powerful these fundamentalists were in bringing Trump to power, even though he wasn't really of their tribe in the past. Uh, another element that they asked for and received was the appointment of an evangelical advisory council 
And lo and behold, a large percentage of this council were also members of the Council for National Policy. And again, they were not only promoting Trump's policies uh, of, of, that were basically antagonistic towards women and gays and minorities, they were also building and nurturing his base among evangelical Christians in the swing states. So this was a whole world of electoral strategy that had been many, many years in the making. So part of this exploration that I undertook on this book became very personal because I was writing about people I'd grown up with in Oklahoma and family members in Nebraska. Um, and I began to think a lot about our national divide. Uh, and in recent years, that divide has been largely defined by news media. Uh, at a certain point when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, the nation basically sat down and absorbed information about policy from the local newspaper and from the six o'clock network news. There was a very high percentage of penetration from those news outlets at that time. So when I came East to college and I met friends from Queens, New York and Newton, Massachusetts, we were working from pretty much the same set of facts that had filtered into the national media, um, even though we'd grown up thousands of miles apart. That's not the case anymore. The audience for network news has plummeted since that time. And many newspapers, especially in the Midwest, have died off, or they've been reduced to weeklies, or they're fighting for their lives. Thousands and thousands. We've had a huge percentage of journalists nationally, professional journalists who have lost their jobs, been laid off, taken early retirement. So we've got a real information vacuum in this country. And there are a lot of people who don't understand what journalism actually is when it's practiced well, how hard people work to report a story, how much their editors hold their feet to the fire to make sure it's accurate, make sure it's fair, how uh, professional news organizations have lawyers who vet the stories and, and again, try to make fact-based reporting a real professional discipline. So if you have this vacuum in that world, and it's especially acute in local communities and in statehouse reportings, well, nature abhors a vacuum. And what is it filled by? It's been filled by a lot of these unprofessional institutions, not just the fundamentalist and religious broadcasters, but also the Fox News outlets and the Sinclair stations, where they really don't have the same allegiance to fact-based reporting. And you have concentrated campaigns, uh, often in support of the administration, and often replicating in the same language, uh, policy statements that are coming out of Trump's White House and amplified by this whole battery of news organizations. So right now, uh, you can see it on many fronts. I remember hearing exactly the same language repeated after the Las Vegas mass shooting, where the Fox News and the 
fundamentalist radio stations were saying the only reason the Democrats wanted to hold hearings on gun control was to exploit the tragedy, as if that was the only reason anyone would want to hold a hearing on gun control. Uh, it happens again and again, and it's gone back into operation as the 2020 elections are approaching. It's, it's a really a campaign strategy. Um, it's also been supplemented by a digital campaign. In 2010, the Koch brothers invested $50 million, that's five zero, in a data platform called i360 that was state of the art. It gathered commercial data, political data, uh, consumer data, every kind of data you could imagine for pretty much every adult in the United States, uh, meaning virtually every possible voter. And it started distributing this data through a series of apps that were developed for the National Rifle Association and the Family Research Council and other organizations whose heads are active with the Council for National Policy. So this created an uneven playing field when people went to Canvas. In the midterms in 2018, for example, the people who went to Canvas for the Democrats would ring a doorbell and they would know the name and the address and the party affiliation of the person behind the door and they had to wing it from there. When the Republicans who were equipped with this set of apps went to ring the same doorbell or the one next door, they would know the party affiliation and the address, et cetera. They'd also know what they ordered on Netflix and what they watched on Amazon Prime, and they would know what their cholesterol level was and what their blood pressure was, and whether they'd been robbed the, the year before and had, had strong feelings about guns, or whether it was a Catholic housewife with nine kids who had strong feelings about abortion. So they could tailor their pitch door to door based on the data that was being fed to them on their app and they could report back into the data platform with what they learned on their visit. And they did well in the Senate in 2018, which was their big target because ultimately what this movement has announced time and time again is that their ultimate goal is to defeat the federal government and to eliminate federal regulations that hamper the extractive industries, regulations that protect the public through environmental protections and the Food and Drug Administration's regulations that affect various corporations uh, and other regulations that have really been installed to protect the public, but they also may limit the profit on the corporate side. Um, that's what the money people behind this movement are looking for and the way that they're seeking to do it is not only through the White House and the Congress, it's through the judiciary. Because if you get a set of federal judges in place, starting at the Supreme Court, but going down through the appellate courts and the circuit courts, then you can have rulings that favor one side over another. And in this case, they have been appointed at a record rate under Trump, and they have been handing down decisions that favor the wealthy individuals, the corporations, and the fundamentalist social policies that belong to this movement. So I go back and I go to talk to my friends from Oklahoma and my high school classmates, and I, I have a hard time having these conversations because they're really working from a different set 
of understandings from what I have. And many of them say things that can be easily disproved by fact-based research. So for example, uh, one of the statements that I run into all the time is that Democrats are in favor of executing babies on the day of their birth. I hear this from people sitting in the same room with me and I have answered, I know many, many Democrats and I've read extensively and researched this question extensively. I've never heard of anyone who argues for executing babies on the day of their birth. This is not a thing, but this is being pumped at them from the entire media sphere that they inhabit. So I've been talking about my book, I've been talking about my research, and I've been really, really hoping that the people I care about in the Midwest, in Nebraska, Oklahoma, all of these other states, can somehow be reconnected with the new world that I inhabit in New York and the East Coast. And the only way that can happen is through information. Uh, I think that this is going to be a long-term process. I don't know exactly how it's going to work, but somewhere, someplace, people have to make this massive effort to reinstate professional journalism, make it available on a local level. Uh, it can't be dependent on the market system because Without professional journalism, there can be no democracy. So whatever the market says, if you don't have democracy, it's not a society that we want to live in. So when I look ahead, I have faith that this can happen. I have faith that we can work this out as a nation, not by expressing contempt for each other, not by looking down on each other or calling each other names, but connecting and looking for the good faith that exists across state lines. And when I was thinking about this theme of good as gold, I thought about another hymn that was written by an extraordinary woman named Fanny Crosby in the 19th century. She was born blind. She lived in New York City and she wrote this incredible stream of hymns that really penetrated every part of American society in every state of the Union. And one of them was called City of Gold, and I thought about it, and that's how I want to imagine our nation in the future. There's a city that looks o'er the valley of death, and its glories can never be told where our hopes never end and each neighbor's a friend in that beautiful city of gold. There's a sun, it will shine on our land so sublime and the eyes of the people our future behold in that beautiful city of gold. Thank you, Anne. Our next storyteller is Tatiana Fazla-Lizade, artist, activist, and author of the new book, Stop Telling Women to Smile, stories of street harassment and how we're taking back our power. In this story, 
Tatiana shares how her art expresses who she is as a woman, a woman who isn't always polite. I have always been expected to be good in my life. When I was a little girl, um, I was a quiet child and I feel like I was always expected to be happy and to be pleasant. Um, and I never felt like I fully had range to be a full person with anger and frustration and um, a full range of emotions. I was expected to be pleasant and to be polite and to smile and to be sweet. And a lot of times I was, that's just my natural um, disposition a lot, especially when I was younger. But I think as I started to grow older, I started to recognize that this was something that was expected of me because I was a girl and because I was growing into a woman. It's not something that was expected of my brother or of my male cousins. Um, and I always resented that, always resented expecting the expectation that I should be a good person, that I should be pleasant and happy all of the time. When I started to venture out into the public space, I realized that this was expected of me even more. Um, the idea that I should be smiling all of the time and have a pleasant express expression on my face was something that was related to the idea of me being good, of being polite and being happy, um, and not something that was related to me being a person, a human being, a full human being. And I've always rejected that. And I started to be expressive of that rejection in my artwork. I've always admired women artists and women who activists and women who simply broke the mold and went against the grain and were not polite. Women who cursed and who sat with their legs spread apart and who talked about sex and who drank a lot and who um, talked about these things that women were not supposed to talk about, these things that women were only designated for men to do and things that men to talk about and men to act and behave in a certain way. And so I always kind of admired those women. And when I started to do art and started to do public art, it was something that I've sort of always had in my mind. Um, the idea about street art being illegal, about it being vandalism, about going into the street and taking back space and taking up space in a way that I wasn't supposed to do, I wasn't allowed to do, excited me. And it still excites me. It's one of the reasons why I love being a street artist. Um, the first time that I put up a street art piece was exhilarating. Didn't have permission. I had a poster in my hand that said, women are not seeking your validation. And I went out in the street and I put it up on a mailbox, one of those old mailboxes that you see on the street on the sidewalk. And I put it up and it was amazing. I knew that it was vandalism, um, but it was exhilarating to step back and to see something that I put up without permission that was talking about how I wanted to be treated in the street, that was talking about how women are expected to be good, how women are expected to look a certain way, to be consumed a certain way, and to say, no, this is not how we want to be treated. And to put that up without permission, without asking anyone if I can put this up on your wall, um, but just putting it up because I wanted to, because I needed to. But it's vandalism, right? Um, and that's what's cool about it. And that's what is significant about the work. But that's also what, you know, can get you in trouble. Um, the first time that I was stopped by the cops, I've been stopped a couple of times for putting up street art. I was 
sort of terrified. Police scare me, um, and I think for good reason. Uh, it's reasonable to be scared by, of the cops. Um, I was putting up a piece, and I was in Brooklyn, and I was walking down the street, and I actually had someone with me. He was recording me for a piece. He was a reporter. And we're walking down the street, and I find a spot on the wall that was great. It was perfect for this poster that I wanted to put up. And so I look around and I check my surroundings and I don't see anyone coming. And so I spray the wall with the wheat paste and I use my brush and I splash it and I put the piece up really quickly. It probably took maybe 30 seconds. All of a sudden, as I'm stepping back and I'm walking off, I hear a cop siren pull up. Um, on the curb and I hear the cop yelling at the car what are you doing and so he gets out he stops me I'm scared my heart is beating and he's like what are you doing you know that that's illegal you can't do that um, and he's very aggressive with me and uh, you know I didn't know exactly what to say what do I say to him um, you know and I finally said I can take it down you know, it's not permanent, I can take it down. And he goes on to berate me and tell me that, you know, we spend all of this money painting over this vandalism. You all are out here and you're doing this and you know you're not supposed to be doing this. He takes my bag that has all of my material in it, my brushes, my wee paste, my posters. He looks through it. He's like, what is this? And so I make something up on the fly. And I'm like, you know, um, it's an art project. I'm a student. I didn't know that this was illegal. And I kind of like play down what I'm doing because I don't want to go to jail. Um, and he gives me my stuff back. And he's like, take this. Don't do it again. And he lets me go. But all he says is, don't do it again. And I thought to myself, don't do it again. Like, of course, I'm going to do it again. I walked around the corner and I put up another piece in like under 10 minutes. And I felt exhilarated again. I was nervous and I was scared, of course, because I don't want to interact with the cops at all if I can help it. Um, and I was scared. But it was something about knowing that this is not legal, knowing that I don't have permission, knowing that this is not allowed, but I'm going to do it again and I'm going to keep doing it because it's something that I want to do and I feel like I need to do, that I have to do. I'm doing it because it's a good cause, it's a good reason, um, and I'm also doing it because why the hell not, you know? And it's something that men do all of the time. Men are sort of dominating the street art space and the art world space in general. And I felt like I shouldn't be afraid and I shouldn't have to um, be quiet about what I go through and the type of art that I'm making just because I'm a woman. It can be dangerous being outside in the street as a woman just in general. And it can be even more dangerous being outside at nighttime, putting up work that's illegal, doing something that's illegal and that you don't have permission to do. But when you feel like it's something that you have to do, that you want to do, and that you feel like is not expected of you to be doing because you are a woman, it makes me want to do it even more so. And so I still, just as I did when I was a girl, reject the idea that I need to be good, that I need to be nice that I need to be polite. I think that all women should reject that. I think that take it upon yourself to be exactly who you are, be loud about it, be bold about it, be courageous, and not care about being polite and being good. Thank you, Tatiana. Our final storyteller is Philip Kennicott, art and architecture critic for the Washington Post and author of the new book, Counterpoint, a memoir of Bach and Mourning. In this story, Philip talks about finding Nathan, 
the greatest dog in the world, except for Nathan's one significant flaw. In 2013, after several years of living without a dog, I decided that it was finally time to correct this abnormality. So my partner and I started looking for dogs. We went to animal shelters and we started looking around on uh, pet adoption websites. And it wasn't long until we found the perfect dog. He was this little bundle of black fur with a tiny little snout and white paws. And his name was Nathan. And when we adopted him, the rescue service said that they thought he was going to be a Newfoundland, which for us was perfect. We had lived with a very smart and wily and mischievous dog. And it seemed to us that smart dogs really tend to only benefit the dog. They have all the fun and the owner gets all the mischief. So we were looking for a slightly more mellow dog and a Newfoundland would be perfect. But Nathan did not turn out to be a Newfoundland. We, we downloaded a, a weight chart from the internet and we would put him on the scale every couple of days and we would check the chart and he just was not gaining weight. You know, he was eating voraciously, he was happy, he was healthy, but he was not turning into a Newfoundland. And he in fact turned into some kind of oversized border collie. And he's exactly the sort of dog we thought we were gonna try and avoid. He's really smart, he's hyper energetic, he's lively, he's always looking for an angle. He is the best dog in the world, he's golden you might say, but he's got one big problem. He hates the music of Johann Sebastian Bach. Now, for other people, this might not be a problem, but at the time, I was writing a book about Bach, and I was trying to learn one of Bach's greatest pieces, um, a work called The Goldberg Variations for keyboard. Now, not only is Bach really, really annoying Nathan, the Goldberg Variations annoys him more than anything else. He absolutely hates this piece of music. But we know this because he's incredibly demonstrative. When I play the piano, no matter where he is in the house, he will get up and he will begin to whimper and then snort and then he'll begin to howl softly and then he'll approach the piano with his ears down and his back straight. He'll kind of stalk it like it's a wayward sheep and the howling will get louder and louder. And if I keep playing, which is really painful because I know it's absolutely hurting my dog, he'll sulk out of the room howling and howling and then he'll sink down someplace as far as he can get from the piano and whimper and whimper until I stop. It's so bad that I actually went out and got an electric keyboard with headphones so that I could play without him having to hear me. This is a small but painful price to pay for living with the greatest dog in the world. Now, I'm a working newspaper critic, so I'm used to the jokes my friends make. Everyone's a critic. Even your dog is a critic. Even your dog hates your playing. I'm also an amateur pianist, and I would never inflict my playing on anyone who wasn't a close friend or extremely drunk. But the funny thing about Nathan is that he doesn't hate my playing the piano because I'm not a very good pianist. He hates it when I play Bach, and he really hates it when I play the Goldberg Variations. Once my partner and I were listening and watching the film, we were watching The Silence of the Lambs on Netflix, and we got to that point in the film, if I remember right, where Hannibal Lecter's kind of trussed up in his crazy cage, and for some reason, he's listening to the Bach Goldberg variations. Well, no sooner does this scene come on the screen, but Nathan gets out of bed, he walks across the room, he comes up to the television, his ears go down, his 
back is straight. He begins howling at the TV. He looks at us. He howls more at the TV. And finally, we have to turn the TV off because he hates the Goldberg variations. I tried to do an experiment to figure out, could he actually recognize this piece? Now, howling at Hannibal Lecter is one thing, but what if I played a different pianist playing the Goldberg variations? What if I played Mozart or Wagner or some other piano piece? And what I found out is that he really hates the Goldberg variations. He hates Mozart. Yes, he'll howl at Mozart sonatas, he'll howl at Beethoven sonatas. If Wagner wrote for the piano, a lot of music, he'd probably howl at that too. But it is the Goldberg variations that really, really get him. Now, it turns out that animals have a lot more musical perception than we give them credit for. There was a French composer named Camille Sanson who had a dog named Delilah. He also wrote an opera called Samson and Delilah. And he noticed that Delilah hated the piano. And perhaps this is why he became sort of sensitive to animals and music. And he wrote an essay about this in which he notes that, among other things, when he played the piano at his country house, spiders would gather near him uh, in the window. He had a friend, and a friend had another dog. And that dog loved the piano but hated Chopin which is really weird because Chopin is probably the greatest composer who ever wrote for the piano. So go figure. An old friend has said the same thing about cats. Now this friend um, has two cats. One is very, very smart and the other is not so smart. And the very, very smart cat could care less about music. But the not so smart cat, who happens to be extremely beautiful, he says, um, actually loves Bach and has his wife plays the violin, and when she plays Bach on the violin, the cat will come and curl up in the violin case. But if she starts playing something else, the cat will just go away. So while I was writing about Bach, I became really obsessed with this question, and that is how much do animals know about music? And it turns out there is actually a field of study called zoomusicology that looks into some of these questions. And human beings have actually been interested in zoomusicological questions for a long time. More than a thousand years ago, there was an Arab mathematician and scientist named Ibn al-Hatam who wrote a book about the influence of melodies on the souls of animals. Now, the book didn't survive, but we know it through excerpts, which has some really interesting details, like music can change the pace at which camels walk or persuade horses to drink. Contemporary zoomusicology tries to make some of these anecdotal things a bit more scientific. By studying the behavior of dogs and their heart rates, a recent study concluded that music is generally calming to dogs in kennels, and that the most calming among the various genres studied was soft rock and reggae, with Motown and classical slightly less effective. But zoomusicology is a bit like contemporary neuroscience. It's very good at making connections, but it's not so good at actually getting at the real question you have, the real thing we care about. And for me, that is why, why does poor Nathan actually hate this music? What does he hear and feel when I play the Goldberg Variations? I've tried to understand this in a scientific way as I can by eliminating possible explanations for his misery. For example, someone suggested that maybe he's just jealous of the piano. The piano is this big black beast, and he's a big black beast, and he feels like he should be the only big black beast in my life. So he's jealous, it's envy. But the funny thing is when I play the electronic keyboard, he doesn't have the same feeling. In fact, he does what my, my earlier dog did. He just comes up and curls up at my feet, and he goes to sleep. 
So I don't think it's about jealousy. It's not about I'm spending time with something else and when I should be spending time with him. Some people suggested that it's just the timbre of the piano. It's just that particular bright, lively sound that the piano is making. But he doesn't react to the piano if I play with somebody else. For instance, my partner likes to sing, and so we sing Schubert and Schumann and French songs, and I accompany him. And Nathan never howls the piano when we make music together. Some people insist that maybe it's just bright, fast music of any kind that bothers him. Maybe he just hates high-pitched sounds. But the funny thing is that flute music doesn't bother him, nor do sopranos when they sing. And like a lot of dogs, he doesn't like sirens. But I know that when an ambulance or a fire truck goes by and he howls at it, it's a very different sort of howl. It's not that existential pain that he howls with when I play the Goldberg Variations. I kind of gave up on solving this dilemma and decided just to tell people that my dog, who is the greatest dog in the world, is uniquely talented. I was struggling to play Bach, but Nathan was so brilliant that even the greatest piece of keyboard music Bach ever wrote, the Goldberg Variations, even that was beneath him. That, of course, isn't true. Um, after years of struggling to learn Bach, and Nathan still howling at me every time I tried it on the grand piano, that I got close to what I think is the answer. I was cleaning out the attic, and in the attic was the old crate that we had when Nathan was a puppy. We tried crate training him and it didn't really work. Um, when he was a puppy in this crate, he was dwarfed by it. Now, if we tried to stuff him in it, he could barely turn around. But when I noticed the crate, I remembered that when I was training him in those very first weeks that he was in the house, that was when I was actually beginning to play the Goldberg Variations. So every day after he was exhausted from playing around as a puppy, I would put him in the crate and then once he was asleep, I would go and I would practice the piano. I would start learning the Goldberg Variations. I was just starting to learn from them. And that's the only music Nathan ever heard. My mother had died only a few months before that. And I was using the Goldberg Variations kind of obsessively at that point, trying to avoid thinking about things, trying to sort of absorb those darker energies um, without getting sucked into the kind of black hole of grief. But what I didn't realize is that Nathan must have been grieving too. We had taken him from his litter, we'd taken him from his mother, and he was suddenly in this strange house surrounded by people he didn't know. Everything in his life had been upended. And that must be what he feels when I play this music, which was the soundtrack, I think, to the hardest time in his little life. He hates the Goldberg Variations for the same reason that so many of us may love or hate a piece of music. It's the Madeleine. It returns him instantly to something or some place in his memory. He hates this music because he misses his mother. Thank you, Philip and Nathan, for that story. And thank you to all of the writers for participating in this episode of the House of Speakeasy podcast. To learn more about House of Speakeasy and what we do as a nonprofit, visit our website at houseofspeakeasy.org, where you can sign up for our newsletter, become a member, and find out how you can help our mission to connect communities through storytelling. Hope to see you next time. Bye.